everything, and we see that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God who is with your people, that you are a God who fights for your people, and who is going to turn evil into good. We see that in the life of Joseph. We see that how you work all this out in the patriarchs, and we ask that you would be with us today, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that you would work in our hearts, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers, and that we would be worshipers of you. We pray that you'd be with me as I communicate it, that I would um, be clear, and that you would just help me to say what is be most honoring to you and helping us understand this text. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin today, we're going to start, as usual, with review, and just remembering where we've been and where we're going. So remember, we're looking at the big picture of Scripture, how all of it fits together, how all of it works together to tell um, one story, the story of redemption. And we've been looking at that through the lens of the theme of the kingdom, right? And the kingdom is God's people. And we see that, we saw this last week, we looked at the promised kingdom, God's people, Abraham and his descendants in God's place, the land of Canaan, under God's rule and blessing, the blessing coming through the Abrahamic covenant. And by the end of our lesson today, we're going to have a new element. We're going to also be looking for God's king, okay? So that'll be coming at the end. But we all looked last week at the Abrahamic Covenant. We looked at the promises God made to Abraham. And I said, when I say Abrahamic Covenant, you need to think of an acronym, right? LSB, Land Seed Blessing. It just needs to be immediate in our lives. So when we think Abrahamic Covenant, we think of the promise of the land, the promise of the seed, and the promise of blessing to all the nations through that. And we also talked about God was starting a nation. He's starting a nation in Israel, remember? And there, he was showing and teaching the nation of Israel what their founding values are. Who's Moses writing to? He's writing to the people who are coming out of Egypt after the captivity for 400 years. And he's teaching them who they are and who they are supposed to be as a nation. And we looked at one of their founding core values, right, is faith. And we looked at faith in the life of Abraham and how faith is the human expression of by grace alone. And even though Abraham constantly put the seed in jeopardy and put the plan in jeopardy, did he really? No, because God overruled that, and God always made his promises and his plans come to pass. And we had a purpose statement, remember last week, that we're going to look at in the life of Abraham, the outworking of the covenant and the value of faith for Israel. Well, this week, we're going to see more of the founding values for Israel. We're going to see more of who they're supposed to be in the rest of the lives of the patriarchs, and Isaac and Jacob, and in Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph and Judah. And so our purpose statement for this week, what we're going to be looking at is, see it, read it clearly, we're going to continue to see the founding values of the nation. In Jacob's life, we will see that God is with Israel and that God fights for Israel. And in Joseph and Judah, we will see how God turns evil to good. So we are going to continue to see the founding values of the nation. In Jacob's life, we will see that God is with Israel and God fights for Israel. And in Joseph and Judah, we will see how God turns evil to good. We're going to see that God is present, God fights, and God turns evil to good. And these will be founding values for the nation in the lives of the patriarchs. And our outline today is going to be simple. We're going to look first at the life of Jacob, and then we're going to look at the lives of Joseph and Judah. And again, in Jacob's life, we're going to see that God is with Israel, and we're going to see that God fights for Israel. And in Joseph and Judah's life, we're going to see that God is going to turn evil into blessing, into good. So turn with me to Genesis 25, and we will begin there. We left off last week with Isaac marrying Rebecca, and 
Now Rebecca is barren. She can't have children. And so we read in verse 21 that Isaac prays for her. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is it happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And then she gives birth right to the two children. But right here we need to pause and realize before they're born, before they've done anything, God chooses. God sovereignly elects who is going to rule, who the seed and the line is going to go through. He chooses Jacob. And this shows again that this is not a promise being worked out through human means and by people's will, but by God's will and God's control and God's sovereign choice of election is shown in the fact that before they're born, God has chosen the younger son. Esau is the older son. He is born and he is a skillful hunter, a man of the field, and his father loves him, right, because he brings him food that he likes. But Jacob, name means wrestler or striver, schemer, a trickster. And Jacob's personality and who he is is identified in his name. Like he is those things. He is a, a schemer, and we'll see that throughout the narrative. But in fact, one th- as I was listening, one of the um, professors I listened to said, Jacob schemes, but God redeems. And we're, that's just going to be a little, so from Abner Chower, just remember that as we go through the whole narrative, Jacob schemes, but God redeems. He always has a plan, and his plans are really silly most of the time. And God is going to redeem them, and God is going to work out his purposes, despite the fact that Jacob's always trying to manipulate circumstances. And we see right away that he starts doing this because we just start with the boys growing up. And Esau's hunting, right? And he comes in from hunting, and he's starving. And he says, please give me some food. And right away, Jacob's got a plan. He's scheming. You can have food if I get the birthright. I want the birthright. And so we see that Jacob's not waiting and trusting on the Lord, and that's going to create a tension between these brothers that continues on that's going to cause problems. But how does Esau respond? Even though Esau wasn't chosen, we're going to also see that Esau doesn't have the character that God is is going to use. Esau despises his birthright. What's Esau's birthright? It's the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He's rejecting the covenant. What did Abraham give to Isaac? What is Isaac passing on? He's passing on the covenant promises, and Esau doesn't care. He despises his birthright. He despises the covenant promises, but Jacob says, I want those. And, and so we see the character of Esau from the beginning, not caring about the Abrahamic covenant. And by the end of chapter 26, it says in verse 34, Esau was 40 years old, and he took Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. Not only is he marrying multiple women, but he's marrying Canaanites. What, remember Jacob's, excuse me, Abraham's big warning about Isaac? Don't let Isaac leave the land. Don't let Isaac marry a Canaanite. And here we just see the character of Esau, that he doesn't care about the eternal things. He doesn't care about the covenant promises or the covenant. In chapter 26, Remember, throughout Abraham's life, we kept seeing how does the covenant work out in his interaction with other people. And 26 just shows the same thing is happening with Isaac. God reiterates the covenant promises twice to Isaac. He he reminds them, land, seed blessing, I'm giving it to you. Remember the promises. Remember that I'm going to work them out. But we also see, verse 12, Isaac sowed sowed in the land, and it reaped in the same year a hundredfold. One equals a hundred when he sows. Like, that's unbelievable bounty. And we just see the blessing. We see that when you're in the covenant, how the, 
the, a picture of what's going to happen when the true seed, the, the one who's going to reverse the curse comes. One can re- yield a hundredfold. And we also see how the nation's supposed to interact with Israel. Abimelech, a leader in the land, a Canaanite, he comes to Isaac to make a treaty, showing that Isaac is the greater one. Isaac is the one he can perceive as a threat, even though he's a wanderer and doesn't have land, right? Just like his father. And so how the nation should be interacting. So we see the promises of the covenant working out in Abraham's life. We see Esau rejecting the promises. But we also are going to see that... I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Um, So we see that Jacob schemes, and then chapter 27, he's scheming again. Isaac is going to give the blessing of the firstborn, right, to Esau. And he sends Esau to hunt and prepare a meal for him. And we should pause right there, because who's supposed to have the blessing? Jacob. What is Isaac doing? Isaac is subverting what God has ordained, and he's doing it. Why? Why is Esau his favorite son? Because of food because of something so temporal and so it just you know it, it feeds his senses the, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes like it's it's the sensual loving of food that is more important to him than the covenant promises and the fact that his son what character has esau shown does esau care about the covenant does esau care no he's despised his birthright but jacob's going to bless him but rebecca hears rebecca hears and so again we have a whole family of schemers and she has a plan and she gets Jacob right, they execute the plan, and they go in there to trick Isaac, but does it work? Well, not really, because what does Jacob forget to do? Disguise his voice. He's done everything else, but he comes in, and and Isaac says, is that you, Jacob? But again, they've made a plan, and what does God do? Does Jacob get the blessing anyway? Yes. He allows Isaac to be deceived so that Jacob gets the blessing, but because of the manipulations, because of the Um, not waiting and trusting on the Lord. There are consequences. Isaac's going to have to run for his life. Excuse me. Jacob's going to have to run for his life, and he will never see Isaac and Rebekah again. They're going to die before before he ever returns to the land. So he's running for his life from his brother because he has the blessing. But let's look at the blessing. Look in verse um, 27. Um, 28 is where we'll start. It says, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So we see right here that promises of the Abrahamic covenant. You hear the echoes of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And then Esau comes in and begs Jacob for a blessing to Isaac for a blessing too. But what does Isaac say? I blessed your brother so completely. Is there anything left to give you? And, you know, he says, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained them. What then can I do for you, my son? He's given him this great blessing, and he's going to be passing on the Abrahamic covenant to him. So in chapter 28, because of Esau's hatred toward his brother, but also because of the danger of marrying a Canaanite, Jacob's is going to be sent away. Isaac calls to Jacob, and he blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise and go to <clears throat> Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you, to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of the sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Abrahamic covenant. Again, may God give you the promises of the covenant. May he pass it on to you. 
And so Esau flees. Jacob flees. Jacob flees. And, you know, again, what were the two warnings in Abraham's life? Stay in the land and don't marry a Canaanite. So the fact that he's leaving the land, he's in a dangerous position. He has nothing, right? When we, when we look down in verse 12, um, 10, we're starting to, this, the passage about Jacob's dream. He's sleeping with a rock for a pillow. He doesn't even have a sleeping bag. I mean, I know they didn't have sleeping bags, but he has nothing, right? He's out in the open. He has nothing. He has a rock for a pillow. He's in a dangerous place, but God is going to meet him there. And this is where we're going to see very clearly that, remember, God is with Jacob. And I, when we're going to backtrack here and look at the fact that starting about chapter 26, the key word in the narrative is with. The key word in the narrative going forward is going to be with. And um, it's just used incredible, much, much more if you did a statistical analysis at the end of Genesis at the beginning. And I'm just going to read through a couple of the passages where we see it. Um, in in 26.3, it reads, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. And in 26.8, it says, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. This is Abimelech coming to Isaac. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us. In 28.4, in the blessing, it says, May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring. May that blessing be with you. And now, in chapter 28, it becomes really clear in the stairway to heaven that God is going to be near. Read in verse 13. Jacob's dreams, right? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Here it is again. Behold, I am with you. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And when Jacob wakes up, what does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. This dream is to show Israel that God is near. It's supposed to show Jacob that God is with him, God is near, and over and over again he's going to be reminded of that. And not only that, he was reminded one more time in the dream of what? The Abrahamic covenant. The covenant Isaac has passed on to you, but God also emphasizes, I am giving you this covenant. The promises of Abraham are going to come through you and your land, and I am with you. And even in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 51, this stairway to heaven is mentioned again in reference to the Son of Man, that God is near. What is, it, what, what is a, a New Testament name that we could think of for God is with us? Emmanuel, right? God, and, and we're getting the picture of it here. God is with Jacob. And that's one of the things that Israel needs to remember. All the founding principles of the nation, when Israel becomes a nation, that is what they're supposed to be announcing to the world. That is what they're supposed to be displaying to the world. That is what they are supposed to work as, as missionaries, essentially, as a, as a nation that's an evangelist to show the one true God to all the nations around them. And they are supposed to show the world that God is near. God is near. So Jacob, God, Jacob's faith is... And he's a schemer, right? He has a plan. So we go down, down to verse 28. Jacob's blown away that God is here, but he has a plan, right? If, if God will do for me these things, right? If God will keep me, if he'll be with me, if he'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if he brings me back, then he'll be my God. His faith has a lot of, oh, needs to grow a lot, right? Has a lot of room to grow. And he's still just always trying to have a plan. If God will do this for me, then I'll do that for God. Then I'll give you a tenth of all that I have. He, he's just still scheming. 
and he goes to his uncle, and if Jacob's a schemer, Laban is a better schemer. He is a greater schemer. It's a family trait. And we know the narrative well, so I'm just going to point out kind of how these schemes play out. First, there are the wives, right? Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but Laban schemes to get his first daughter married, and then marries a second daughter. And what happens when you marry sisters? Things should implode, right? They should not work well. And in many ways, we do see it becomes dysfunctional. But instead of it destroying Jacob's life, what does God do? God gives him 12 sons and a daughter. So God multiplies his children. So Laban has a scheme against Jacob. Jacob has a scheme for a wife. But God multiplies his children. And we see it with the animals, right? Laban is constantly changing Jacob's wages so that he can get the better end of Jacob working for him. He's getting blessed because Jacob's there, but he wants to still come out ahead. And so what what do they do? The speckled and the spotted goats, right? Those are going to be the payment for Jacob. And Jacob, you know, takes the bark of the stick so that when they breed in front of it, okay, even in ancient Near East texts, that was an old wives' tale. We know that's not how genetics work, but even back then, they mocked that. So Jacob is doing this thing to make the flocks work for him that could never work and that most people think is a silly old wives' table even back then. But what happens? Does he get speckled and spotted sheep and goats? And are they the strongest in the herd? Because Jacob schemes, but God redeems. God is working out his plan to bless Jacob. Even if it's not through what Jacob does, his plans are silly. And then, chapter 31, God tells him, right, it's time to leave. Right? We see in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred. Where's that key phrase? And I will be with you. I will be with you. But, again, understanding how things work in the ancient Near Eastern times, he's under the household of Laban. He's in that household. And so instead of being up front and saying, God has called me to go back, or doing it with integrity, he waits till, you know, he leaves, he sneaks away. He leaves under the cover of darkness, Laban's gone, and he's just, he's gone. Well, that's kidnapping. Right? That's why Laban gets his task force and chases him down. And when Laban finds him, says, I could kill you. And he could have, and under ancient Near Eastern law, he could have killed him and been completely blameless, the whole household. Even though you think, well, this was Jacob's kids and this was his own family, how it worked then, he was under Laban. He was under Laban's household and the patriarchal system that they had. So he leaves in a way, even though he's supposed to leave, he left in a way that was, I'm going to trick Laban, says that in the text, I'm going to be a trickster. And he puts the whole family's life in jeopardy. He literally causes the, the, the seeds of the promise could be, right, wiped out. But, but how does it end? It ends with a treaty. It ends with peace. And they each go their separate ways. No harm comes to him. God is with him. Jacob schemes. God redeems it. And then we come to Esau. Because who still wants to kill him, right? Or at least Jacob thinks Esau still wants to, to kill him. So Jacob keeps having these plans, right? Plan one, we're going to divide the forces. So they attack camp one, then t- camp two will survive. The problem is you've just weakened your, your whatever force you have by half, right? So you've just divided your military might and weakened it. So that's not a great plan. So we'll go across the river. Well, if you and all the little kids can cross the river, can Esau cross the river? Yes. Obviously, it's not difficult. So the river is not going to protect you. So we'll put our family dysfunction on display, and we'll line it up. Least favorite kids die first, favorite kids die last. So we get to see exactly how dysfunctional what he's doing and how his plans don't work. But God is going to meet him here. Read in verse 20, well, it starts in 22, that Jacob's going to wrestle with God, right? Jacob starts wrestling, and in verse 27, what does God say to him? What is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Jacob in Hebrew and the word wrestle in Hebrew are just about like one letter, one sound apart. They're very similar. God is wrestling with Jacob to show Jacob who he is. Who are you, Jacob? You're a schemer and a trickster, and here you are thinking you're going to die tomorrow, and you always have these plots, and you always have these schemes. You're, that's who you are. But your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Do you know what Israel means? God fights for you. God fights for you. God is going to protect Jacob. God is going to deliver Jacob. God is going to fight for Jacob. And we start seeing another revelation of the founding principles of Israel and who they are and how they're supposed to be. God fights for Israel. You know what? When God fights for Israel, he's not just fighting particularly for Jacob, right? Because Jacob's the one who the covenant promises are coming for. God is fighting for Genesis 3.15. God is fighting for the plan of redemption. God is fighting for the seed and for what the seed is going to do. And one time I heard a sermon on the big picture of the Bible in one setting, and the pastor called it, um, God begins, God wars, and God wins. And that's how you could, in one sense, summarize the Bible. And we are at the God wars part. Remember, there's always a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of of the woman, and God is going to fight for the redemptive plan. And he's not fighting for it in a way that he could lose, right? This isn't because it's so, it's because God is a warrior. How does he come back in Revelation, right? On a horse, leading an army. He's he's showing his power and his might, that he is stronger, that nothing's going to overcome his plan, but God fights for Israel. Israel needs God to fight for him. They will never succeed on their own. So God changes his name, and God blesses him. But Esau's faith is going to take, Esau, excuse me, Jacob's faith is going to take a few more chapters before we really see change. But we see right away in chapter 33, how does the meeting with Esau go? Esau comes and falls on his neck, cries with him, and they leave with peace. They go their separate ways, and the conflict with him is over. All his planning, all his scheming came to naught. Esau is willing to accept him because God fought for him. And then you come to chapter 34, and you might think, this is kind of a, an interesting, like, it's almost kind of jars you from the narrative. Like, why are we suddenly having this story about Dinah? This chapter 34 is really going to show us the danger that Israel is in because of the Canaanites. So Dinah is raped. And so first of all, when you're raped in this culture, that's capital punishment. But how does Jacob respond? Jacob kind of thinks on it, waits for the brothers to come home at night. That is not how a father should respond when his daughter is raped and a great crime like this has been committed against her. He's scheming. How can I use this to my advantage? And you see that because what's he going to do? He's going to make an alliance with the men of Shechem, right? He's going to marry his daughter to a Canaanite. Are we supposed to marry Canaanites? No, no. We keep getting wives from other people because we're not supposed to. And why? So we can marry and we can trade and we can, you know, interact with them. And in fact, how does, how does the Shechem, the leader of Shechem, convince all the men to get circumcised? Verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? We're just going to incorporate them. So here we see Jacob scheming for his, you know, for for an advantage through his daughter's rape, showing you again his character is not where it needs to be yet. And we see that his sons are a little bit more righteous. They're indignant. They're angry that this has happened, right? But what do they do? Do they just punish the man who committed the rape? No. They use the sign of circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant, 
to massacre the entire town, to take the children, take the women, to, to wipe them out. And so we see the dysfunction again in his family. We see that these people are not trusting in the Lord. We see how they're, the danger the Canaanites are to them. Chapter 35, God says to Jacob, verse 1, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you first fled from your brother. Remember he said, if you bring me back, started in Bethel, the stairway to heaven, God's bringing you back to Bethel. God's not going to allow them to stay like this. He says, come, repent, be made right with me. He's bringing them back. So Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, showing you again how bad is the situation. They're worshiping the foreign gods. Put away the foreign gods from among you. Purify yourself. Change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to God who answers me in the day of my distress. Here it is again. Here's that key word. And has been with me wherever I have gone. Verse 5. Because of what they did, they, they remember J- Jacob was afraid that all the towns were going to come and attack them. And that would be a really reasonable response. You just had an entire Canaanite town wiped out by these two brothers you would want retribution. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon them that the cities were around them so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Who's fighting for Israel? Who is overriding their schemes and overriding their mistakes? God is. God puts a terror on them and he protects them. And then just note verse 23, because Jacob's sons, are, we're going to be looking at who, you know, where's the seed coming from? Verse 22, excuse me. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah. So now the firstborn son has slept with one of Jacob's concubines. He has disqualified himself from being the firstborn. Simeon and Levi have massacred a town. They have disqualified themselves from being next in line. Those were the first three sons of Leah. And that'll come out to play when we get to Genesis 49. So that brings us to Joseph. Joseph, the younger brother no one wants to have. He's 17, probably 18 at this time. He has these great dreams that you'd really, or all the older brothers are going to bow down to him, right? And he lords it over them, and then he's daddy's favorite, and he's given a coat of many colors, which is a sign of royalty. So you have a spoiled favorite brother who likes to point out to you that he's the favorite brother, and you're all going to bow down to him. So the brothers take the sheep, and they go a few days away, right? They need some space. They need a break. But dad sends Joseph, and we all know what happens. He is going to be sold in slavery because here's the point to which the dysfunction in his family has come. The brothers hate him. They hate him to the point that they want him dead. There is no brotherly affection. We see the dysfunction of the favoritism, of the plans and the schemes with the wives. They hate their brother. And we're going to see now who's, who's going to be the leader of the brothers. Reuben makes a plan. Let's, let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. And Reuben goes away. And Judah has a plan. Let's sell him into slavery. And whose plan is followed? Judah's is. They, the Ishmaelites, and do you see everything compounding? Hagar and has Ishmael, right? And here are the Ishmaelite trade, slave traders taking Joseph to Egypt. And back then, a life expectancy would have been about two years, maybe. So what they're wishing is that Joseph would die. They're killing him, but they want somebody else to do the actual murder. So we'll sell you away. Somebody else can kill you. And they go and they tell Dad, right, that Joseph's gone. And how did they... Tr- Convince, convince Jacob that Joseph's gone with his coat, right? How did Jacob deceive Isaac, right? Same way. He, he dressed like Esau. So we see things just constantly coming full circle. But despite the failures of the patriarchs, God keeps reiterating the promise. God keeps bringing them back to him. God keeps reminding him of who he is. And 
And one thing I just even, you know, 35, in chapter 35, after he'd renamed him in um, the stairway, sorry, after he renamed him after the wrestling, when he calls him to repent, he reminds him again, you're Israel now. I, you're Israel. So after they had journeyed, he goes, God appeared to him. He promised him the covenant again. He said, um, in verse 9, he said, your name is, is Jacob, no longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel. And then he says to him again, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you. I will give to your land the offspring. So again, he just keeps bringing him back to you. You're going to be Israel. You're going to be the one that God fights for. The covenant promises are coming for you. The king is coming from you. And we're going to see, how, and now that's what the brothers are all looking for. Where's the king coming? And Jacob's clearly rooting for Joseph. And we just got Joseph out of there. And now we're going to see what we're going to focus on Joseph and Judah. Usually in church, they focus on Joseph. This story is as much about Judah as it is about Joseph. In fact, Judah is the one who you're going to see change in. So Joseph is sold into slavery. Chapter 38 is about Judah and Tamar. And we looked at this in the lesson. So I just want us to pull out what are the key principles we need to understand about the story about Judah and Tamar. One, again, what is the threat of living with the Canaanites to the line? Jacob has left his brothers. He's not living with Judah, has left his brothers, and is not living with the family. He has now married a Canaanite. He is giving his sons to Canaanites. His sons are so wicked, God's just killing them. Not because they're married to Tamar, because they're just wicked. So God's killing off the seeds, right? There's one son left, and Judah doesn't give, her to, doesn't give him to Tamar to be married. So Judah is always protecting his own self-interest. Judah is never taking responsibility. He is putting the line and the promises in jeopardy because no one, we don't know yet which son it's coming through. So all the sons should be guarding the covenant, right? And he's intermarrying, and now he's just even, basically he's not going to give his son to this woman to marry, so is the line going to continue? No. He's going into a cult prostitute, he thinks. But, you know, that's participating in a false religion. And verse 25 after she found out that he, she's pregnant, what does she say? We are in chapter 38, verse 25. And she, being brought out, sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I am, since I did not give her my son Selah, and he did not know her again. Why is she more righteous? Because she cares more about the seed than he does. Because she's a Canaanite who cares more about the promise being continued than Judah does. That's why she's more righteous. Who is her son? Perez. We looked again in the lesson. Who is he in the direct line of? The Messiah. The Messiah is going to come from Tamar's line. A, a foreigner. And we just get a tiny picture. When you want to leave your evil ways and you want to join God's people, you can. And Tamar and her son are in the Messiah's line. Right? And God cares not, he cares about the big picture and he cares about the individuals. And he cares about what's happening in the story. He cares about what's happening with Joseph and he cared about Leah, right? She was the unloved wife and she has seven children to everybody else's two because he opened her womb and he blessed her and he blessed her and he blessed her. He sees what's happening with the individuals but he's also advancing this plan. It's a both and. So meanwhile, back in Egypt, we go back to the story of Joseph. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was where? The Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. This is, again, the Abrahamic covenant working out. Where you see the seed, you see blessing, right? And so here's this Egyptian 
um, master being blessed because the seed is there. And we also see that God is with Joseph and blesses him. And Joseph becomes second in the land. And again, another picture because God is going to what bless the whole world through the seed. Through Joseph, he saves the whole world from famine. So he raises him to power, and then there's famine, and the whole world comes to Egypt. And he also saves who through that? He saves the redemptive family. That he saves the nation of Israel because that Jacob and all his sons are going to have to come for food too. So we see in chapter 43, the brothers are coming to Joseph. His dreams have come true, and Joseph's testing them. Joseph is testing them to see, are they different? Is their character different? Have they changed? And he's using Benjamin as a way to do it because who's the favorite son now? The only other son of Rachel, the favorite wife, is Benjamin because they think Joseph's dead. How do they treat Benjamin? How do they look at Benjamin? How are they treating their dad? So Joseph's testing them, and we're going to see how the brothers have changed. He sends them home, and he says, don't come back again without Benjamin, right? But Israel's not going to let Benjamin go. This is his favorite son. So what does Judah? Remember, Reuben has a proposal, right? Reuben says, you can kill my sons, loving dad. If you, don't, if you don't, you can kill my sons if I don't bring them back. But do we listen to Reuben? No. Reuben is no longer the leader. Verse 8, we listen to Judah. And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and our little ones. And I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame. That means sin. Let me be as sin to you. Let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we already would have returned twice. So the man who would not take any responsibility and would not let any injury come to himself says, I will take the blame, and I will bear the responsibility. But this could just be, you know, I'll say this to Dad, we'll get some food. But then we turn to chapter 44. And after the cup had been found in Benjamin's bag, and Benjamin's life's in danger, they think, from Joseph, we see that Judah means what he says. Chapter 44, 30. He says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, As soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant has become a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." He is willing to take Benjamin's place. He's willing to substitute, to lay down his... Remember how long do slaves live in Egypt? Not long. He's willing to lay down his life for his brother. Why? Because he loves his dad now. He loves his dad, and he's honoring Jacob. This is kingly. This is the kind of king that Israel's looking for. One who will take the place, one who will love his brothers. Not lord power over them and take the wealth of the people, but one who's willing to lay down his life. And we're going to see... Right? It, J- Joseph breaks down at this point. They're restored. Jacob comes to the land. And God, again, is going to use Joseph because we saw how great is the threat, right? Chapters 38 and 34 with Dinah and 38. The Canaanites are a great threat to the line. But now they've come into the land of Egypt, and they're going to get secluded in Goshen. And God's going to protect his people and isolate them as they grow into a nation. Where the foreign nations and the foreign gods aren't going to be influencing them. The Egyptians won't even eat at the same table with them. They're not intermarrying with them. And they're removed from Canaan, and God is using Joseph to protect them. And so we see, again, 
What are we looking for in Judah and Joseph's life? Evil to good. Judah was an evil man. Judah is a repentant man. He's now a man who would lay down his life for his brother. Joseph has been, I mean, he started out spoiled, but fairly consistent character of righteousness along the way. But God is showing how the covenant will work, that he's using him to bring evil from blessing, that the Israel is preserved, that the family line is preserved, that the world has been preserved through how God is using Joseph. And then we come to chapter 38, and Jacob is blessing his sons at the end of his life. And this is, for, excuse me, 49, 49. Um, chapter 49, I'm a little dyslexic. Not that those were even the same numbers, but I do that a lot. So, 49, and we are going to see that the he's going to bless the tribes. And as, as each brother is blessed, basically the character of the brother becomes the character of the tribe. So this is going to play a part in all of the rest of our study of Israel. So it's a, care, it's a, it's a key passage, and if you want to study it further, there's a great book called Jacob's Dozen. Jacob's Dozen by Will Varner that I, I just recommend to you. He goes through each of these and how it plays out in each brother and each tribe's life. It's really fascinating. But we're going to focus in on Judah because remember we're looking for where is the line going and we're also looking at the rights of the firstborn. So Leah's firstborn, Reuben's disqualified. Her second and third are disqualified because of what they did to the men of Shechem. Judah is next. What, is, what does he have to say to Judah? He says, Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. That could also be translated Shiloh, and that's a better translation, which means peace, until tribute comes to Shiloh, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But, and so we see right away, who's the king coming from? Judah. What kind of rule are they going to have? Perpetual rule. Until one gets the scepter, who will have permanent rule? Who's going to follow that one? When that seed comes, all the nations are going to follow him. Blessing to the whole world. It's not just all the tribes. It's all the peoples are going to fall to this one. And then what happens when he's ruling? When, when Shiloh, when peace is ruling, the prince of peace, Solomon's name is going to mean peace. That's going to be a motif for this king. When he is ruling, you can bind a foal to the vine. Think about a vine. Vines are thin, they're flimsy, they're weak. You don't tie animals to vines and hope that they're going to stay put, right? When a vine is so thick and so strong that you can bind a foal to it, what does that tell us about what's happening in creation? What does it tell us what's happening with how things grow? And then the picture's developed further. He will wash his garments in wine. Obviously, we don't want to wash our clothes in wine. It's bounty. Wine is going to be as plentiful as water. And his vestures in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. There's going to be so much milk, you, can, you can't really, but it's like you can make your teeth white with them. This is a picture of incredible bounty. Think back to Isaac and one seed reaping a hundredfold. This is cursed a blessing. When this king rules, we will be back to an Edenic state. We will have a restored creation. That's when the earth is going to have such bounty. That's when the curse is going to be reversed. That is when we are going to be restored to Eden. The serpent crusher is coming, Genesis 3.15, through Judah. But Joseph is also blessed. Remember that the firstborn gets the double portion? Do we ever talk about the tribe of Joseph? No. Because who becomes the tribes? His two sons. He gets the double portion. Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons, they become tribes in Israel. But again, God chooses. The younger son, Ephraim, serves, is greater than Manasseh, the older son. And then 
it also sets us up. The two powerful tribes for the rest of Israel's history are Ephraim and Judah. We even have some power struggles as this goes on. Jacob dies, and the brothers are afraid. The brothers are afraid that now Joseph's going to get even. But what do we read in verse 19? Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Joseph knows that God is sovereign over everything, and God is going to turn evil to blessing. And as I, so as we, as we just think and wrap this up, God is with Israel. But again, what is Israel supposed to do? Israel's supposed to display who their God is to the world. If you're a believer, God is with us, right? Romans 8, nothing will separate you from the love of God. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In Psalm 139, there's nowhere you can hide from God. As a believer, that is one of our greatest comforts. We are comforted by there's no trial you're going through, no danger you will face, no circumstance you'll ever find yourself in that is outside of God's love, God's providence, and God's care for you. If you're not a believer, there is nothing more terrifying. You will never hide from God's judgment. You will never avoid God's judgment. There is nowhere you will escape God. God is everywhere. If you are in God, God is going to turn evil to blessing. God is going to give us a new heavens and a new earth. And if you're not, you're going to get a resurrected body to suffer forever in, right? In hell. It all comes down to where we're putting, what's their first founding principle? Our faith. And Israel's supposed to display that to the world so that the world knows who God is and the world is putting our hope in the promises that God has given because the destiny of the world is tied to the destiny of Israel because as Israel's king goes and as that redemptive promise goes, that's how the nations are blessed. That's how the world goes, right? So it's all tied together. So as we leave, I hope that we are people every week. It comes back to the same thing. I see more of God's character and I want to worship him more and be focused on this more, but also do we see constantly how the patriarchs weren't submitting and the great consequences of sin in their life. To be one who submits to God's will, submits to his promises, submits to his word and what he's called us to do, and submit to how he's working in our life, how he is orchestrating our life and what he's doing because he is in control of it. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a God who is with us, a God who fights for his people, a God whose plans will not be thwarted, and a God who turns evil to blessing. We thank you for your hope that you have given us and the promise of salvation. And I pray that you'd help each of us this week to love you more, to follow you more closely, to know you better, to share the good news of your promise of redemption with those who don't know it and are lost, and that we would be people who worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.